The scripture for today's reading comes from Genesis 1. The word of God speaks to us. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. This is God's word to us. Thanks, Lizzie. Good morning. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is JJ. I'm one of the pastors here at Frontline, and it's my joy to kick off our series through the book of Genesis this morning. So you guys know that uh, I'm going to need your help and the help of the Lord. So pray with me and pray for me as we get ready to jump in. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that we've come to a God who speaks. Thank you that you're the kind of God who reveals himself to his creatures. Open our ears to hear what you want to say to us this morning. We need to hear from you. We pray these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. Filmmaker Woody Allen was once asked why so many of the characters in his movies seem to believe that life is meaningless. Woody Allen replied, well, it's because I firmly believe that life is meaningless. I'm not alone in thinking this. There have been many great minds far superior to mine that have come to that conclusion, And the universe, as you know from the best of physicists, is coming apart, and eventually there'll be nothing, absolutely nothing. In the large scheme of things, only the big questions matter, and the answers to those big questions are very, very depressing. So what I would recommend, this is the solution that I've come up with, is distraction. Distraction. As an artist, I can't give you an answer that's satisfying to the dreadful reality that's your own existence. So the best I can do is maybe entertain you, refresh you, distract you. Over the next few months, as we walk through Genesis 1 through 11, verse by verse, we're going to see that Genesis is, in fact, eager to provide an answer that is satisfying to what Woody Allen calls the dreadful reality that is our own existence. So my task this morning is to offer you an introduction to the book of Genesis, and then Chad will come next week, fix everything I said, and lead us through chapter one, verse by verse. As most of you know, in modern times, since the Enlightenment, perhaps no book of the Bible has been more of a punching bag, has undergone as much criticism and ridicule as the book of Genesis. Modern debates around science versus religion seem to always circle back around to this ancient text. And a lot of people nowadays just dismiss Genesis out of hand as fable and fairy tale without even wondering whether there's any other way to read it. 
Ancient stories intended to shape right from wrong, maybe keep your kids out of jail. They're good for Sunday school, but then everybody eventually has to grow up and move beyond fairy tales. But what I want to submit to you is that instead of being embarrassed by Genesis or intimidated by Genesis, as we get ready to jump into this series and our toes are curling over the edge of the high dive, we need Genesis. We live in a day and age where we more than ever before possibly need Genesis. So I want to give you four reasons why I think we need Genesis now more than ever. Number one, we need Genesis to regain our center. We need this book to regain the central points that God is at pains to make instead of being derailed as we have so often if you've grown up around the church by a bunch of intramural debates about different ways of interpreting secondary issues in this book. The good news for us is that the age of the earth is not make or break for the empty tomb or the resurrection of Jesus. There's a variety of faithful interpretations throughout history, some better than others, around a lot of secondary hot-button issues in this book that we can't have as much certainty about as we wish we could. So we need Genesis to actually help us regain the center as we read Genesis. We need Genesis to regain the central source of meaning in our lives, which is God himself. And the good news is that Genesis is all about God. In fact, in case you didn't know, the whole Bible is a book about God, and that's really good news. We don't need any more books about us. There's a whole section of that in your local Barnes & Noble, but none of us are ever going to be really happy until we find something bigger than ourselves that's actually outside ourselves to give our lives to. And the book of Genesis was written to introduce us to what Genesis contends is the only being big enough and beautiful enough to hold our attention and satisfy us for eternity. But it's easy to lose sight of what Genesis is actually about when we come to the book of Genesis. All sorts of challenges and questions come to mind, whether you're young or old. How old's the earth? Is evolution a viable worldview for a Bible-believing Christian? How did they fit all those animals on the ark? Did the flood really cover the whole earth? And while those questions are valid, they're not really questions that the author of this book is at pains to answer, which is part of why it's so difficult for us to get the answers we want. Genesis wasn't written like you or I would write a history book relaying a bunch of supposedly unbiased facts to us or indulging all of our curiosity about our intramural debates. Instead, what the author's doing is he's taking real history to paint a picture of what God's like, what he's doing, and why he does it. Genesis wants to tell us a true story in a very particular kind of way, highlighting very particular things along the way to reveal God. And the good news for us is that the God that he reveals, if you're wondering what he's like, could never be mistaken for some kind of airy-fairy, new age, impersonal, ethereal life force. He's personal and he speaks. He moves towards his creatures and he names them and he makes himself known to them. He's not indifferent. He has emotions. They're unpolluted by sin or human frailty. God doesn't fly off the handle or forget things but they're real emotions nonetheless. He's active and he's interested and he's present and it's very clear that he has an agenda. So that's the first thing. We need Genesis to regain 
our center, but we also need Genesis to re-enchant our world. We badly need to recover the re-enchantment of our world today. Because even behind the most cutting-edge theoretical physics, there's still infinite mystery and wonder. In case you haven't checked lately, physicists have not scraped the bottom of the barrel. There's still so much we don't know. Hey, what's everything made out of? Oh, I know, atoms. Well, what are atoms made out of? Uh, Protons. What holds protons together? Uh, Those are called quarks. What holds quarks together? Uh, We call them gluons. You know, it's like invisible space glue, basically. Okay. Uh, In the words of one science journalist, quote, inside the proton lies the deep, unsettling truth. Stuff is made of nothing or almost nothing held together by glue, lots of glue. (laughs) Uh, This mystery has been labeled by scientists confinement. How does everything hold together inside of those quarks, those completely invisible little quarks, instead of flying apart? And it's still considered by scientists to be one of the great unsolved mysteries of the modern world. It even has its own branch of physics called quantum chromodynamics. One of the pioneers of quantum chromodynamics currently teaches at Princeton, and he admits, quote, if you really study the equations, it gets almost mystical. Now, now what if our world were to be re-enchanted to such a degree that we wouldn't be tempted to roll our eyes if someone offered up Colossians 1, Paul's word to the church in Colossae in response to this conversation? Colossians 1.15, Paul says, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, all kinds of bizarre spiritual beings you can't see. Everything's been created through him and for him. He's before all things and notice, in him all things hold together. We know a lot, but it's a drop in the bucket compared to what we don't know. And the deeper we press into the bleeding edges of the sciences, the more the best scientists come away filled with awe. There's a professor of experimental physics at Cambridge named Russell Coburn, and he's a Christian, and he echoes what tons of other leading Christian scientists are saying when he says, understanding more of science doesn't make God smaller. It allows us to see his creative activity in more detail. Genesis is at pains to teach us that God is not distant or irrelevant or asleep at the wheel of the universe. There's a British author named Francis Spufford, a former atheist, who wrote a brilliant little book back in 2013 that got a lot of attention because of how clever it was about his newfound Christian faith called Unapologetic, Why Despite Everything, Christianity Can Still Make Surprising Emotional Sense. Listen to what he says. I think that the universe is its own thing, integral, reliable, coherent, not Swiss cheese with irrationality or whimsical exceptions, and at the same time, is never abandoned. Not a single quark, proton, atom, molecule, cell, creature, continent, planet, star, cluster, or galaxy. I think that the reason reality is in some ultimate sense merciful 
as well as being a set of physical processes, is that the universe is sustained by a continual and infinitely patient act of love. I think that love keeps it in being, Spufford says. We need Genesis badly to re-enchant our world. We also need Genesis to rediscover our purpose. Just glance at what Genesis has to say about the meaning-making of our first parents, verse 26 of chapter 1, and then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds and livestock, the whole earth, everything that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created a male and female. He created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish and birds and everything that moves. And so the Lord took the man verse 15 of chapter 2, and put him in the Garden of Eden, notice, to work it and keep it. Verse 20 of chapter 3, and the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Listen to the purpose. We're going to see how Genesis sets the foundations for so many things that are essential to being a human being. God's vision for bodies and work and gender, sexuality and marriage and families and our ecological responsibility for virtue and ethics and worship. Genesis wants to give us a robust vision of what it means to be a human, a particular kind of human, a human made in the image of God. But it's hard to hear Genesis Because we live in a day and age where we've been told that we don't need all those things, that if we'll just turn in on ourselves and go on an inward journey alone, we'll find all the meaning and purpose that we need. But Genesis is going to demonstrate that's a fool's errand. Looking inward is not the answer. Picture three men on a construction job site all doing the same task. And if you were to ask each of them in turn what they're doing, the first man might say, I'm laying brick, obviously. But the second man might have a little more vision and say, I'm building a wall. The third man with a gleam in his eye might answer, me? I'm building a cathedral. How well do we understand our purpose? What if we really knew how sacred our ordinary, everyday, mundane, seemingly meaningless tasks actually are? But Genesis doesn't just make sense of our tasks. It also makes sense of our essence. It answers the question, why are you the way that you are? Not only that, but what were you intended to be, and why does it feel like there's tension between those two things? Genesis says, oh, that's because there is. So I want to tell you about your beauty and your failure, about your glory and your brokenness. There's probably no other book in the Bible, maybe no other book in the world that paints so high and so low a picture of, human, of humanity all at the same time. We're paradoxes. We see this grand vision of how God created us at the heights and how unprecedented that would have been for other ancient Near Eastern documents Because in Genesis, you see something you see in no other surviving books from thousands of years ago, and that's that every single person has equal dignity and value. It's something we take for granted in the West. 
It's the grandeur given to us by Genesis that's actually built the modern world. It's become the foundation for how we conceive of human rights in the West. But unlike the sacred text of our therapeutic age, Genesis also talks about really uncomfortable things like the depths to which we've fallen, the evil and violence that lives inside each of our hearts, how even the best of us are broken and have strayed from God's grand vision, what he intended for us from the beginning. And so as Genesis holds those things in tension for us, we start to be able to make more sense of ourselves. We're meaning makers. We're engaged in sacred work. But we're not just building cathedrals. We ourselves have been built as cathedrals, but we're all born into this world after the fall of our first parents, and we look a little more like bombed-out cathedrals. We contain within ourselves, at the same time, great ruin and great beauty. That's what it is to be human between the creation of the world and Jesus' return. We're cathedral ruins. And according to Genesis, the invitation for us for restoration and reconstruction is to look up, but we live in an age, as I said, of endless introspection. We're looking within, and I think... As a nation in the West, we're growing increasingly frustrated with the results of that journey. There's a theologian named Brian Rosner who wrote a fantastic little book. If I was rich enough, I'd buy you all a copy. It's called How to Find Yourself. And the subtitle is Why Looking Inward is Not the Answer. Brian Rosner, How to Find Yourself. And notice what he says. People today increasingly have what sociologists call the buffered self a self-defined and shaped from within to the exclusion of external roles and ties. How do you find your true self? You find it by detaching from external influences like home and family and faith and tradition, and you have to determine who you are for yourself. Self-definition is thus the culturally endorsed route to identity formation in our day. Today we have a do-it-yourself self or a self-made self which looks only inward to find itself. Academics, because they like to come up with fancy names for things, have coined the phrase expressive individualism to sum all this up. Expressive individualism. It sounds technical, but as I describe it, you'll recognize it immediately. Listen to the following beliefs that characterize the water we're all swimming in, expressive individualism. The best way to find yourself is to look inward. The highest goal in life is happiness, and we don't have anything else to say to you if you haven't found it. All moral judgments are merely expressions of feeling or personal preference. There's your truth and there's my truth, but there's no such thing as big T truth. Forms of external authority are to be rejected. If it's authority, it's inherently bad. The world will improve dramatically as the scope of individual freedom grows. That's what your toddler is usually trying to explain to you. (laughs) Hey, hey, mom, the world would improve dramatically if the scope of my individual freedom could grow. Everybody's quest for self-expression should be celebrated, and certain aspects of a person's identity, like gender and ethnicity or sexuality, are of paramount or ultimate 
importance. So as you look at that list, I want you to stop and ask yourself, which of these beliefs has most deformed your life spiritually? Which of these beliefs has actually deformed your life? We need Genesis to help us understand why looking inward is never going to lead to the kind of ultimate meaning and fulfillment that we all crave, that we were all designed to desire. But as we look into the book of Genesis, the story of God starts with intention, blessing, order out of chaos, meaning written onto a blank page of the universe, purposes handed down, living systems set in motion, men and women made to reflect the very image of God. Genesis 1.22, and God blessed them, saying. He makes us in his image, then he blesses us with his words, and he offers us a commission. And so what that means is according to the book of Genesis, God doesn't raise any latchkey kids. He doesn't create us and then leave us to our own devices. Verse 15 of Genesis 2, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you'll surely die. So there in Genesis 2, we see the Lord's command. His creation's good, his communication is good, his commission is good, and his commands, even his commands are good. But we don't have long to wait because by verse 1 of the very next chapter, Genesis 3, God's goodness is already being called into question. His generosity is already being met with suspicion. But that shouldn't surprise us because that's how sin works. Sin has no ultimate explanation. It's a word in our culture that carries all this religious baggage sort of associated with being nice and not naughty. It's, it's sort of been emptied of all of its significance, but, but we need to recover the semantic domain of the word sin because we need something to explain our irrationality in the face of goodness. Sin comes from rage. Sin comes from, from an obsession with dethroning good authority in order to set up false authority. And then if we pause and ask, why would somebody want to do that? The only answer is, good question. Sin can't rest until goodness is torn down and evil is enthroned. Sin can't stand being told what to do. Sin would rather devour itself than bend the knee. It's the most irrational force in the universe, and it lives inside all of us. So not only is God's command questioned by the serpent in verse 1 of chapter 3, we'll see, but by verse 5, even worse, his character is slandered by the serpent. And the text of Genesis repeatedly says in the chapter leading up to this that God saw that his creation was good, and God saw that his creation was good. And here come the man and woman, and they see that what's forbidden is seemingly good, and so they rebel. Verse 6, 
of chapter 3. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? By verse 6 of chapter 3, sin's already broken into the story. By verse 7, shame's come in. By verse 8, humanity's already hiding from God until eventually by chapter 4, we come to one of the saddest sentences in the whole Bible, Genesis 4, 16, says, then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden, which leads to the fourth and final reason. We so badly need Genesis now more than ever. We need Genesis to rescue us from our sin. By verse six of chapter three, sin. By verse seven, shame. By verse eight, hiding. And then not even one verse elapses. Immediately, by the very next verse, verse 9, God's already going in after his image bearers. That's who he is. That's what he does. God moves towards his people and he asks, where are you? We all hide. We're all afraid of being cast off by God. But God goes in after us. He goes in after you. As you're sitting here today, do you actually believe that God's gone in after you? Some of you have heard me tell this story before. There's a scholar named Andrew Del Banco. He's Alexander Hamilton, professor of American studies at Columbia. Would not profess to be a Christian, to my knowledge, but in his book, The Real American Dream, A Meditation on Hope, he famously recalls a moment that has stuck with him. He says, while working a few years ago on an essay about Alcoholics Anonymous, I attended some AA meetings around the country. One Saturday morning in a New York church basement, I was listening to a crisply dressed young man whose every word and gesture gave the impression of grievously wounded pride. He talked at length about his faultlessness and his determination to avenge himself upon the many people who had betrayed him. And while he was speaking, the man sitting next to me, a black man of about 40 in dreadlocks and shades, leaned over and whispered, I used to feel that way too, before I achieved low self-esteem. <laughs> and Del Banco says, oh man, this was more than a good line. <laughs> it was the moment I understood in a new way this religion of Christianity that I had studied and written about and claimed to know something about. As the speaker bombarded us with phrases like, taking control of my life, believing in myself, toughing it out, all the tenets of expressive individualism, the man beside me took refuge in the old Christian doctrine that pride is the enemy of hope. And what he meant by his joke about self-esteem was that no one can save himself by dint of his own efforts. He thought the speaker was still lost, lost in himself, but without knowing it. So God comes to us and he asks Hey, where are you? Genesis is going to help us see how we're all lost in ourselves, 
And we're not going to truly find ourselves until we first recover our origin story. Nothing's going to be set right. We're not going to be able to achieve low self-esteem until we learn what went wrong in the first place. Verse 24, chapter 3, God drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Verse 8 of chapter 4, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his own brother Abel and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Verse 5 of chapter 6, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. All the time. And yet somehow, in the midst of the insanity of our sin and our rebellion, still standing in the smoking wreckage, God promises our first parents that a son would someday be born who would come and crush the head of the snake and actually bring us back to the garden that he had just lovingly and patiently banished us from. Verse 14 of Genesis 3, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. You're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to bruise your head. Standing there in the wreckage, with our shame exposed by our sin, then God not only offers words of hope, but he moves to cover our shame. Verse 20 of chapter 3, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living and in that moment of naming her and her life-giving capability is probably Adam confessing that he trusts God's word that somehow he's going to rescue us even though it looks irreparable, that the seed of the woman contains some measure of hope. Verse 21, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Our sin sends us into exile, but then God immediately moves to bring us home. God, by his grace through Jesus, is in the business of renovating and restoring cathedrals. So as we prepare to close, I want to offer you a few questions to consider. But I have to give you just a little bit more background first. This book unfolds a story of a God who's nothing like all the other little g-gods of the ancient Near East thousands of years ago when this text was being written and read. There's all sorts of other ancient Near Eastern creation accounts that have survived to the present day, like Enuma Elish and the Atrahasis epic, and they all are pretty consistent. They tell stories of a pantheon of gods who are tired of working, so they create humans merely to feed themselves by putting the humans to forced labor. Not a very compelling vision for what it means to be human. 
In these accounts, Genesis is a little bit like a bad biker bar. It's a place of violence and competition between the gods that are really just like a bunch of superheroes gone to seed who are really selfish, they've got crazy sex drives, and these accounts are really just written to commemorate the victor gods and remind everyone else in a really petty way that they whooped all the other gods. And then you come to the book of Genesis, and those ancient Near Eastern readers would have been stunned because in Genesis we see one god not a pantheon of gods in some kind of celestial biker bar. And we see a divine plan for peace, not discord and strife. And a created order designed to bless people, not just demonstrate the superiority of one god over his rivals. And we see a god who provides mankind with food, not the other way around. And we see an honest account of humanity's descent into violence instead of the idealistic Mesopotamian belief in progress that for some weird reason we still haven't shaken all these thousands of years later. Here's a book that would have defied their expectations and assumptions about what the gods were like by describing a god who neither uses humanity nor withholds good from humanity. And yet here we are, thousands of years later, just like our first parents, still tempted to accuse God of withholding, still suspicious of his commands, still forgetting in the words of 1 John 5, 3, that his commands are not burdensome. So I want you to ask yourself, where have you quietly come to believe in your life that God is withholding from you? Which of his wise commands are you uniquely tempted to view as a burden rather than a blessing? What's so beautiful about this book is it's the perfect pushback to a culture that's increasingly untethered from true reality in ways that just plain don't work. And so against an explosion of knowledge that never quite seems to add up to wisdom, against an obsessive scientism that never quite adds up to significance, against a pop psychology that endlessly diagnoses the self but can never quite define the self, Genesis steps into the conversation. It invites us to rediscover our origin story. It invites us to consider together whether the ancient Christian scriptures can tell us where we came from, what we're made for, And who might, if anyone, be able to rescue us from all the ways we've gotten lost in ourselves, but without knowing it? Pray with me. Lord, reveal yourself to us. As we come to these tables, feed us. Thank you that you're not like all those other made-up gods. You didn't make us to feed you, but you made us to feed us out of your bounty and your generosity and your kindness. We ask today that you would melt our suspicions with your kindness. For Jesus' sake, amen.